Hello and welcome to the Leaders' Council podcast, the podcast for the people who run the country and the people who keep the country running. You join us on yet another sunny day here in the capital. I'm Matthew O'Neill, and today, as always, we ensure that we have a variety of distinct perspectives on leadership. First, we're joined by Rod Clark, Chief Executive of the Prisoners' Education Trust, which supports prisoners across England and Wales to gain the skills, experience, and motivation to live a life free from crime. Rod, hello. Good morning. Good morning. Thank you very much for joining us on the program today. Uh, now, normally, uh, we get straight into the subject of leadership. Considering the ongoing COVID outbreak, we are starting with that. How has this affected your organization? Well, it's been uh, a major impact on the prison system, uh, primarily, uh, where prisoners uh, during lockdown have been uh, confined to their cells effectively for uh, up to 23 hours a day. Um, and so the, uh, there's been a massive impact on the learners there because uh, the education staff have not been going into prisons. Uh, of course, prisoners at the moment have no access to uh, digital devices to be able to continue their learning. And, uh, and uh, we've been working really very hard to try and make sure that the uh, opportunities that we offer for distance learning can continue during that period. Uh, what we've had to do is to think very quickly and and work very flexibly to bring in other ways of working. And in particular, what we've been able to do is exploit the fact that some uh, that many prisoners now do have access to uh, telephones in cell. And so uh, I'm very proud of my team for having uh, worked extremely hard to get a, a telephone helpline um, set up in very, very short order. Um, to be able to provide that additional advice, uh, to make more use of um, email, to try and get messages through to prisoners, to write to prisoners, and to be able to continue to provide a, a level of, of um, support for distance learning over this, uh, over this period. Now, of course, uh, it is a difficult time to be in an enclosed space with lots of others uh, due to the uh, pandemic. Uh, and I'm sure that that has to be taken into account. Uh, under normal circumstances, do your uh, instructors go out to the facilities to teach or is it always a distance learning platform? Well, th- what, what we do as a charity is that we fund prisoners to do distance learning courses. Um, and that's a really good solution in a prison system where conventional face-to-face learning inevitably has to focus on the lower levels of learning, particularly basic sort of English and math. Uh, and, um, and if you want to study anything that is uh, a bit more unusual, say a specialist vocational subject, or if you want to take study to a higher level, to take it up to A-levels or uh, beginning to study um, uh, at, at uh, higher education levels, then distance learning, self-directed learning, really is the only, uh, only uh, way of doing that. And what we do as a charity is we fund the courses. So we don't get send instructors into the prisons ourselves. We get the courses delivered. Um, and, and so, of course, you, you, you might imagine that during COVID, that's the ideal um, way of delivering learning. But, uh, but, but, but what we are also very dependent on is, is the systems within the prison to support that, just getting the courses into, into the prisoners, handling the applications from the prisoners to us. 
And um, because education staff have really, since the lockdown started, not been allowed into prisons at all, uh, we've been working around the clock to find other ways of, of, of making that support possible. What criteria do the prisoners need to meet uh, to uh, receive uh, your funding? Is it based on their offense or their behavior with while incarcerated? Or do you have any specific criteria for that at all? We certainly um, that don't uh, look at offences unless it relates to a particular type of course uh, where um, it would be inappropriate for somebody with that particular offence to, to study it. So, for example, if somebody um, uh, wants to study bookkeeping and we um, uh, establish that they've got a fraud conviction, then that's something that we wouldn't be happy to support. But, but apart from that, it really is about the uh, ability of the prisoner to, to take advantage of the opportunity. Now, because, uh, because there isn't any uh, meaningful access to um, IT while prisoners are studying on their own in cell, uh, that does mean that, that they're dependent on sort of paper, paper courses. And that does mean that we do require prisoners to have, have reached a, a basic level of, of literacy, uh, level two in literacy before we study the courses. There are other courses that require uh, a similar level uh, in, in math before they study in some of the more technical courses. Um, uh, other than that, it's really uh, whether they're in a position to take advantage of it. So if they're just on the point of release, we wouldn't be able to fund them then because it's, um, because because uh, w- all our experience is that once you're immediately released, studying is the last thing that, that, that's on your mind and therefore the, 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 the course would in effect be wasted. But what we uh, try very hard to do is to put as few barriers in the way to prisoners doing what they can um, in, in their education as, as we can possibly achieve. And we do know that it really does make a difference. I mean, we know not only from all the uh, individual accounts that the prisoners give us about uh, what they've um, uh, done in their lives after release using that education, but we know from statistical analysis that the Ministry of Justice has done looking at what happens to our prisoners after release compared to a matched comparison group. And our prisoners go on to get jobs, about a quarter more than uh, the matched group, and they go on to reoffend about a quarter less than the matched control group. Education really does make a difference to people being able to live more uh, fulfilling, worthwhile and law-abiding lives in future. Now, we are here to discuss the concept of leadership. I always like to start this part of the conversation off by asking the same simple question. What does the word leader mean to you? I think leader means, uh, to me, uh, somebody who uh, is shaping um, what others do and doing that, um, uh, one would hope, in, in a positive way. Um, I mean, my um, uh, strong conviction is that uh, leaders um, have to lead through their values um, and establish the values of the organization and show a commitment to that. And that if one can do that, uh, if one can create an organization in which uh, the values are shared, 
and the sense of commitment of purpose is shared, then uh, that's an organization that can start to go places. How would you describe your leadership style on a day-to-day basis? Um, on a day-to-day basis, I think uh, I, I'm, um, uh, I would describe myself as a, as, a, as a chairing sort of leader rather than a very directive leader. Um, I believe very strongly that um, uh, I lead in conjunction with my management team. And so I uh, very much want to work alongside them as a group in in shaping the direction of the organization. Um, I would like to think that uh, I do uh, have a regard to the values as the the thing that's got to, to drive our um, our, our, uh, the way in which we behave with each other and the way in which we behave with our service users. And uh, I, I also like to reinforce the sense of, of why we exist. We exist for our prisoner learners. And if we're not doing something for them, then uh, we're not doing what we should be in the organization. Now, of course, uh, every leadership story has a beginning. Uh, And what's the beginning of your leadership story? Did you have a particular role model who shaped you in this way, or were you shaped more by circumstance? Well, I suppose I had had, uh, experience of um, working in uh, government for a a long time. Uh, My career started in the civil service, and uh, I was a civil servant for many years. And uh, the civil service is a completely different sort of uh, culture in which to um, uh, in which to operate than a than a small charity. Inevitably, just because of its scale and because of the complexity of some of the things that it's doing. But I was certainly um, very privileged to work with some um, excellent politicians. Um, whose leadership I genuinely valued. Um, and uh, I thought that, uh, that uh, I mean, I, did, I think generally that politicians can get a very poor press, but absolutely government needs uh, leaders uh, to take a, a uh, to stand up in the political arena and, uh, and to take a lead. I was also um, uh, kind of privileged to work with some uh, senior people who I thought um, uh, showed uh, kind of uh, great qualities of leadership and dedication to, um, to, to, to what they were doing. I mean, I think, again, the thing that, that comes through most is the people that um, really cared about the values and the purpose of what they were trying to achieve. Um, and that, I think, is, the, is, is, is a, a powerful message that I took. I mean, inevitably, in, in, in the world of politics and government, there are, uh, it, it's quite easy to play a, uh, what you might say, as a, as a sort of small p political game in, in which you're looking for your personal advantage. But actually, the ones that make a difference are the ones that um, have that real sense of, of why they're there and what they're there for. Now, unfortunately, our time together has drawn to its close. But before I let you go, what does the next 12 months have in store for the Prisoners Education Trust? 
Well, um, th there's still the recovery from uh, the lockdown, uh, which is a, still a major issue. There are still no education staff going in to deliver classes in prisons. And so trying to find a way of supporting prisoners at the moment is going to be a, a really tricky process. Um, trying to make sure that um, uh, in the economic circumstances that we can get the, um, uh, the, the, the funding that we need in order to continue to operate. But I think there is also one big opportunity that's come out of this. It's so stark, the difference in every other educational sector, how they've been able to continue to operate um, by use of uh, virtual digital learning, and that that just simply hasn't been available in the prison system. I think there is an increasing recognition that that really has to change, and that could be transformatory for the lives of thousands of prisoners. Uh, being able to provide a better quality of education and uh, do things that really help them transform their lives on release. Well, Rod, I'd like to thank you very much for coming on the program. And of course, it'll be great to have you back on the show at some point in the future. But for now, Rod, thank you. Thank you. That was Rod Clark, Chief Executive of the Prisoners Education Trust. And now, if you haven't heard it before, is Jonathan White's exclusive interview with Sir Andrew Strauss. Hello and welcome. I'm Jonathan White, and today we are joined by Sir Andrew Strauss, former captain of the England cricket team and former director of cricket at the ECB. Sir Andrew, thank you very much for joining us today. Real pleasure to be here. Thank you. The pleasure is all of ours. You know, Andrew, you've had a distinguished career, as I said, both on and off the pitch in English cricket, recognised not least with your knighthood for services to sport just last year. So congratulations on that. Yeah, thank you. Um, now, there have been ups and downs in the career, like any career, including public and private disagreements with certain individuals. And on that front, I think what everybody wants to know, have you finally forgiven Marcus Dreskothic for giving you that stupid Lord Brockett nickname? <laughs> um, well, my recollection was that it wasn't Marcus Dreskothic who gave me that nickname. Ah. It was actually Mark Butcher. Uh, He's but to blame. You know, I think there were a lot of people. It was the senior England teams at the mo mm. at that time who wanted to sort of put me in my place and make sure that I didn't get above my station. So um, uh, thankfully, it didn't particularly <laughs> stick, other than within those group of players. And you really did try and get on their nerves by getting above your station, because of course, in your first outing, uh, you went on to score 112. Mm. Now, am I right in saying this, perhaps, that you only got there because Michael Vaughan did himself an injury? Well, that was the reason I got on the pitch in the yes. first place. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, it's often sort of misunderstood or misjudged the role that luck plays in a in an international career or sporting career full stop. And, um, you know, I was wait, waiting patiently in the wings mm. for an opportunity and it didn't really seem like an opportunity was going to come along. And then you know, I only got injured in the nets and there was my chance and I had to kind of grab it with both hands if I could. And you certainly did. What was it like then to uh, see your name being put up on the Lord's Honour Board after your first appearance? Yeah, look, I'd just been transported to a completely different world almost. I'd been, I was a Middlesex player, I was mm. captain of Middlesex. All my focus was on helping Middlesex sort of win the championship and whatever. And then a week later... I've scored a test century, which is something I'd always dreamed out you know, literally all my life. And then the thought of doing it at Lords in your first test. I mean, it was literally the dream. So, And then suddenly I started thinking, wow, hold on. I'm, potentially I've got a whole England career ahead of me and everything that entails. So it was a real shock to the system. Um, but I suppose 
what I was grateful for was that I was rel- relatively old, probably not the right way of putting it, but I was 27 of years course. of age. I was pretty comfortable with my own game. And I was also, I think, mature enough to understand um, that this was a great opportunity for me, but not to get carried away with it, which is unfortunately what happens with a lot of younger players. Without a doubt. And I think in those early years of your career, it's so important, I think you'd agree, especially when you're learning from other more experienced people, and this can be true of any field, whether it's sports or politics or business, um, to have somebody there that you can rely on or look up to for guidance. In those early days, was there somebody that you could say to this day that, thank goodness they were there for you? Uh, well, I think in preparing me for international cricket, Justin Langer was a massive um, mm. source of advice for me. So he was captain of Millsets before a couple of years beforehand and really helped me understand what I needed to do to get there. Um, But then I think on the day-to-day basis, my wife Ruth played a a huge Mm. role, you know, just in terms of, because I I think there is that real danger that you get carried away with it and you think international sport in that goldfish bowl that, you know, you're more important than you, you were previously or that that whole world is the real world. And, uh, and obviously all we know is that the real world, nothing's changed other than mm-hmm. other people's perception of you. And you need that grounding. And again, that can be true of any uh, so many different areas of life. I think so, yeah. I, I mean, very easy to get caught up in it and end up doing different things, being with different people, sort of trying to enjoy everything that goes with international cricket rather than focusing on the actual international it's cricket. And in those early days, Andrew, there were lots of examples where you could have got carried away because that team accomplished so much. Um, I think for a lot of people, the 2005 Ashes series is one of the greatest sporting moments of this country's history. Now, we could chat for hours about that, but I know uh, I wouldn't be allowed to, and, and, and you've got <laughs> other places to be, so <laughs> we can't do that, but... If I may, I would love to ask what your highlight was personally for that, but perhaps more importantly, um, as a team, how were you able as a group to deal with the pressure no doubt you were feeling? Yeah, well, the the pressure is like nothing else that I experienced before or after because, you know, I think it's easy to forget how how much of a holy grail the Ashes was mm. back then. You know, we hadn't won it for so long and it seemed like we'd come up against these invincible Australian teams year after year. So, you know, th- the closer we got to it, the harder it became. Um, I remember Ashley Giles walking into the dressing room, for the f- I think it was in the final day of the series and I looked at him and he looked absolutely terrible, <laughs> like just white of a sheet, grey. He looked like aged about five years. I went, God, Charlie, you're not looking too good. And he went, yeah, it's not surprising. I haven't slept for eight weeks. <laughs> and I went, well, join the club. Quite. You know, and I think we'd all been sort of living this behind our own closed doors. And um, yeah, it, it's just an extraordinary thing. And uh, without doubt, the the highlight was, number one, drawing that game at the Oval yes. to make sure we, we, we won the Ashes. But also the day after, you know, that open top bus parade around London and to understand that we'd broken out of the cricket bubble that they're just general sports fans or just people that were interested in in seeing England win at something were all engaged and uh, completely besotted by the whole thing. I think that's such a key point Andrew, because there's, there's so there were so many people back in 2005 that may have not even given cricket a second glance 
and it put a whole new generation, especially of children, school kids, into loving that sport. And so beyond the actual competition itself, what a fantastic thing to be able to say was accomplished. For, for Absolutely. Uh, everything you say there is absolutely right. Like we, we just sort of opened the doors of cricket to a whole new generation. But probably more importantly... It was the one and only time in my life that I got papped outside a nightclub that <laughs> night when we were celebrating. You know, I felt like I'd really arrived well in a celebrity. Yes. <laughs> it only happened for that one night, unfortunately. But I, I did ask for a highlight, and if you didn't perhaps give a specific one on the pitch, uh, uh, so I would suggest perhaps that catch at Trent Bridge. No, no, <laughs> no. I mean, the, the catch at Trent Bridge was, uh, you know. You see a ball, you stick out your hand and it goes in. I, I think um, my personal highlight was I scored 100 in that fifth test yes. match under real pressure. And that, that was one that, you know, that, that wasn't a moment. That was a, a number of hours and I had to dig pretty deep to do that. Now, obviously, not that long later, uh, and you were lucky enough and privileged, I'm sure, no doubt, to serve as captain. And whether you like it or not, you become the focal point of criticism. Uh, you looked on up to and relied upon to be strong, especially when the going gets tough. You become a leader in many senses of the word. Uh, during your time as captain, what qualities does one require to fulfil that role? Ha. Um, well, a fair amount of resilience for starters. Mm. You know, you're absolutely right. You, you know, I, I remember when I, I got the role, it, it did feel like biggest sort of poison chalice of all time and that you know <laughs> yes. sort of a litany of England captains had sort of been churned up by the job prior to me taking over so th there was that sort of realization this is going to be a tough thing to do um and you're gonna have to dig pretty deep but I think actually the most important thing was sort of just pushing all that noise to one side and just clarifying okay if I'm going to do this job what is it that we really want to achieve out of this? Mm. And so you, th suddenly that becomes a bit more exciting and a bit more enticing, the idea of, well, we can do something that's never been done before here, and I've got the opportunity to to play my part in that. So, um, you know, I think that, that was a big part of it for me. Um, you know, I think a lot of those qualities around leadership, I don't think you know you have them until you're in that situation. It's very hard to prepare yourself properly for those sort of situations. Um, and when managing a team, uh, you're required to manage, of course, what some people could call big personalities. Others could use different shorter words. <laughs> How poisonous can it be, players, when players, and indeed, and this applies again to so many different areas of life, when individuals um, think they are perhaps more important than, than a team? Well, I, I think probably worth broadening out that a bit. It you lets. know, I, I think there there are all sorts of different people that you have to um, sort of contend with in a team environment, and uh, the job of a, the leadership or the management is to tr to try and sort of gel them all together and get them bought into what you're trying to do and whatever. So, you know, th there are some people that are a bit more self-absorbed. There's some people that are slightly more maverick in the, the way they, they view the world. Um, there's some people that are very quiet. Uh, there's some people that are, you know, perhaps very worried about what might go wrong. And so you've got to try and mm. understand all these people individually and try and get the best out of them. Um, but, th th yeah, there was definitely a line there for me in terms of um, embracing difference up to the point where someone doing following their agenda was going in a completely different path from the team's agenda and 
you know, if and when that happens, that that should be a problem for a leadership. And if it isn't a problem, then you're not doing your but job. Absolutely. Um, and with, with all that in mind, actually, uh, and perhaps this is a bit of a swing question, but what advice would you give to others in a similar position, leading a team, um, being looked up to? What would be the key advice you'd give to them? And that you couldn't really do without it. Just generally about leading I, I a team. I think so. Yes. Okay. Uh, number one thing about leadership, I'm absolutely certain about this, is that the people you're leading need to know that you care about them. Mm. And if if they genuinely believe you've got their best interests at heart, they will forgive all sorts of other inadequacies you might have. And I've definitely had many. Um, because they they'll know your heart's in the right place, and they. Uh, they'll feel comforted. There'll be a degree of sort of psychological safety or some or whatever it might you might term to to make sure that the, the team comes together when the going gets tough. If they genuinely don't believe you care about them and you're in it for yourself, um, doesn't matter how charismatic you might be. It doesn't matter, you know, how gregarious and and how um, impressive you might be as a person. They will be wary of you. And they will start looking after their own interests very quickly. Um, now, in 2015, obviously, you were appointed as director of the ECB. Uh, you took some pretty uh, major steps early on. Um, you brought in Trevor Bayliss as coach, was or was brought in. Um, you put a much greater emphasis on limited overs cricket. Now, in the abstract, what had you identified that needed to be changed um, for English cricket? And... Were there qualities that you had developed, you'd found out you had as England captain that you were able to bring over the job? Um, okay, so the first thing was we had this unbelievable opportunity of the World Cup on Hoyam Sol in yes. 2019. Uh, I was, firstly, I was sick and tired of watching us make the same mistakes in World Cups, and this includes my time as captain. We just kept it on sleepwalking our way into it and pretending everything would be on the, all right mm. on the night, and it never was. Um, and so I definitely made it our priority to win that 2019 World Cup. I thought that was more important than anything else that was going to be taking place in my tenure. Um, and I knew in order to do that, we had to completely shift our perception of white ball cricket. Quite a radical shift from what we, what we, what we were coming from. Yeah, but mm. the rest of the game had moved on. Yeah. And the rest of the game had understood that white ball cricket was playing an increasingly important role in, in both financially, but also in, in terms of players focus and interest yes. um and we had to move with, in fact we didn't have to move as times we need to get ahead of the time <laughs> so you know we had to completely shift out both our philosophy but also the way we played in order to do that um and i was very lucky uh, having both trevor bayless and owen morgan who were prepared to sort of role model that and lead that through um and the second part of your question around what have the England captaincy sort of done to prepare me for the role? I, I think I was comfortable leading. I was, I knew mm. the environment. I knew what I was getting myself into. And, and in the early days, I could leverage some of the relationships that I had with the players. But actually, I found it a very different challenge because you are so, so far removed from what's going on on the ground. Right. And so, you know, you're relying on other people to have to 
buy into what you want to happen and then do it themselves mm. and often you know in different time zones in different parts of the world so that was that was a very new experience for me well i think the strategy paid off and uh, i don't know you but when watching that world cup final again as so many people did in this country it's once again it inspired another generation of uh, especially school kids who again might not have given cricket a second look who have now become Avid cricket fans. I know of some, it, and it, what what a wonderful thing that must be. Yeah, it was an incredible day, wasn't it? I mean, I think in our vision, like when we're talking about the opportunity of winning the 2019 World Cup, I had this vision in my mind of Lords on a sunny day and a close finish and the incredible kind of, you know, emotion that went with it. Mm. No one could have dreamt no. how it played out. I've never seen anything. I've never seen a game of cricket like that in my whole life, and for it to be... The World Cup final was quite extraordinary. I know some fantastically avid cricket fans who were googling there and then what exactly the rules became because I yeah, well, so was, <laughs> was I actually, yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> absolutely. Um, now, Andrew, in your in your wife's memory, you established the Ruth Strauss Foundation last year. Uh, in doing so, whether you'd admit it or not, yourself and the foundation has become an inspiration to thousands: husbands and wives, mothers and fathers, sons and daughters. Please do take some time, if you wouldn't mind, and you. To explain to the listeners the work the foundation does and and what it's been like to lead a project like that. Yeah, thanks. Um, well, look, I mean, we obviously had a very tough journey as a family. First of all, Ruth being diagnosed, Ruth was someone that was always well. You never think she was going to be someone that was sort of laid down by cancer. And for us to find out that she had lung cancer was mm. extraordinary. She'd never smoked a, a cigarette in her life. And I think we all had this perception of lung cancer being a smoker's disease. Um, and so just uh, having gone through the experience and obviously some very low times and us coming to terms with the fact that, that Ruth had stage four cancer and she was going to die, um, we learned a lot in that process. And, and thankfully, we had time for me to speak to Ruth before she died about legacy and what we could do to make something positive come out of you know, this experience we'd all been through. So after she died in December uh, 2018, uh, I came back and launched a foundation with two focuses. Number one, to fund research into these rare forms of lung cancer. These Mm. are the non-smoking lung cancers. Um, Five to 7,000 people each year in this country are diagnosed with these. No one knows why they're getting them, um, but they're on the increase, and it's women young women that are affected more than men. Extraordinary so, numbers. Yeah, I mean, it, in the list of top 10 cancers, it's number eight. Rare forms right. of lung cancer, number eight. So it's not really rare, it's probably a misnomer, but it's, um, yeah, we're really lacking in funding and understanding. And then the second element, and probably this is in some ways more pressing, is um, to help uh, cancer, anyone who's got cancer who has an incurable uh, diagnosis to help them and their families prepare themselves for death mm. and so in order to do that we need to be able to find ways of them having open conversations with each other because if you do this well it should help the bereavement afterwards if you're well prepared for it it's not something people like to do i was very lucky that ruth wanted to do it um but also we have to have that debate about about the taboo of death and yes. you know effectively how uncomfortable we are talking about it and certainly how bad we are preparing for it. If you, if you think for a moment about antenatal casters before you have your mm. baby, like how we're preparing you for the, how your life's going to change, 
and we do nothing around death, even though we're all going to experience it in one shape, way, shape or form. And, um, you know, we, I think as a society, we need to be better than that. We, we've come a long way in so many different areas and especially around mental health. And we can do better about death. There's no doubt about it. Well, I think it's a, it, the foundation is leading the way in breaking taboos on that front because they need to be broken. Um, uh, I know they've got the foundation is going at some events later this year. So if you could tell us about some of those, that would be yeah. So the I mean, we've got a couple of big ones coming up. So uh, the Westminster Mile, which is a, a very inclusive. If you're thinking about Think about a marathon, but just think about just doing a mile of a marathon <laughs> rather than 26. Sounds ideal. So we've got grandparents, we've got little kids, we've got people pushing prams so that we're going to get as many people as possible to play their part in that and raise some funds. Um, we've got the Red for Ruth Day at Lords again. So that was an incredible day for us it last year. You could, you, Whether you were there or not, especially if you were there, I mean to say, but whether it was the photos in the papers the next day, what an extraordinary, I think it was the 15th of April, wasn't it? What an extraordinary day and what an overwhelming day that must have been for you. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I mean, you know, an Ashes Test match is a big day anyway. Yes. And then f for us to have that extra element of the, the Red for Ruth day and to see the the wave of support, you know, it's probably, it was just, I, myself and the boys were incredibly profoundly affected by that uh, in a good way. You know, we felt so much uh, love and support there. And then the foundation is directly benefited hugely by the, the funds raised. And um, we want to take it up a gear this year and, and make it more of a community thing, not just the, the day at Lords. Um, I even saw some of the stuffiest members of the MCC, Andrew, wearing, re wearing red. So what, what an extraordinary thing. Yeah, well, a lot um, of them <laughs> wear red trousers <laughs> like, anyway, oh, I think. But um, <laughs> no, it, absolutely. You know, they, they were right behind us. And, um, you know, we, we really want that to be something that's embedded in in the English summer, uh, just like the McGrath Foundation days yes. in, in Sydney and Australia. Well, it's been a complete inspiration, um, and uh, I very much hope we can talk about that perhaps late in a few months as well. Absolutely. Um, before we go, as I'm conscious of the time, we uh, it's also an exciting year for domestic cricket, um, not least uh, because of the introduction of the 100, not without its critics, though, I should. And I know you're uh, a big proponent of it. Um, the Blast has clearly shown... Um, that the short form of the game has brought cricket to a new and growing audience, exciting games. Uh, what do you say to those that ask, why do we need the 100 as well? Uh, well, so the 100 is the most important uh, step forward in domestic cricket in this country ever. And the reason for that is that increasingly, well, there's two things. First of all, we need to break out of the cricket bubble. So the blast followers tend to be the same people that follow other cricket. Right. And therefore, you know, that's a small audience, mm -hmm. and potentially a, a declining one over time, even though the blast sales are increasing. Uh, we need to break out of that and try and get g more general sports fans into cricket. Uh, but more importantly, um, just the, the way the tournament's set up and it's one day, one game a day over a six-week period, broadcasters will pay money for that. And therefore, what we're trying to do is re reduce our reliance on international cricket paying all the bills. If you think about test cricket and some of the issues around the world we just can't rely on that money coming in mm. to fund the game so we need to find another way of doing that um i, I just think it's going to be an incredible success i'm so excited about it i know there are people that are worried about it but in two or three years time um you know we're going to have our own uh short form tournament that will rival the big bash and we'll be moving towards the ipl and those are yeah, those are two enormous events out there, and we can have our own 
version of that ourselves. I can feel your enthusiasm for it. As a as an Essex fan, I, I'm still stumped as to I think I'm going to have to choose between either supporting a team based at the Oval or a team based at Lords. And I, I'm, I'll, I'll get over that, but I'll, I'll yeah, have to do well it. Well, surely it's going to be the Lords one, right? Uh, sh- sh- of course. Yeah. <laughs> um, Sanjay, it's been an absolute pleasure discussing that and everything else with you today. Thank you very much. Cheers. This has been the Leaders' Council podcast. Thank you for celebrating excellence and leadership with us. I have been your host, Matthew O'Neill. Until next time, goodbye. Thank you for listening to our podcast. The views expressed within the podcast do not reflect the views of the Leaders' Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, its parent company or subsidiaries, members of staff, other guests, or any other person therein associated.